0: Welcome to another episode of the Reformation Roundtable podcast. My name is Joe Stout, and this podcast is a ministry of Christ Covenant Church in Centralia, Washington. During each episode, you will hear the sermons, liturgy, discussions, and interviews from the various weekly gatherings here at Christ Covenant Church. If you would like to find out more, please visit us online at ChristCovenantCentralia.com. That's ChristCovenantCentralia.com. Please enjoy the following audio. Well, let us rise and worship the triune God. Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And also to you. From Psalm 121. I will lift up mine eyes unto the hills, from whence cometh my help. My help comes from the Lord, who made heaven and earth. He will not suffer thy foot to be moved. He that keepeth thee will not slumber. Behold, he that keeps Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is thy keeper. The Lord is thy shade upon thy right hand. The sun shall not smite thee by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord shall preserve thee from all evil. He shall preserve the Lord shall preserve thy going out and thy coming in. From this time forth and even forevermore. So lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. Let's pray together. O Lord God, Keeper of Israel, who neither slumbers nor sleeps, keep thy people, that we be not burned by day nor frightened by night. Defend us from the scandals and sins of this world. Wherefore we say, Glory be to the Father, who made heaven and earth, Glory be to the Son, who is the shade upon our right hand. Glory be to the Holy Ghost, who shall keep our soul, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. And amen. Well, this morning we are going to begin a new series of exhortations during this part of the service uh, through the Westminster Shorter Catechism. And uh, for those who don't know, um, a catechism is just a teaching device that uses questions and answers as the format. So there are 107 questions and answers that we are going to look at over, I don't know, the next year or so. Now, one of the reasons for doing this is that as a church, we want to know and be taught what Paul calls the whole counsel of God, the whole counsel of God. For three years, Paul ministered to the Ephesian church, and at the end of his time there, he was able to say to them this, Wherefore, I take you to record this day that I am pure from the blood of all men, for I have not shunned to declare unto you all the counsel of God. The Bible is a very long book. It takes a lifetime to read and study and understand what is in it. And yet Paul was able to declare the whole counsel of God to the Ephesian church in less than three years. How did he do this? How should the church do this? Well, down through the centuries, the church has written creeds, confessions, and catechisms to help summarize the Christian faith, to organize and condense the whole counsel of God into something that is a little more accessible. And the Westminster Shorter Catechism is just one of the better attempts at trying to do this. One of the effects of chipping away each week through the catechism is that we will be exposed to many important topics that we might not otherwise encounter in the regular preaching portion of the service. In this sense, the catechism gives us a well-rounded diet of what Scripture deems most important. The Ten Commandments, the Lord's Prayer, God as Trinity, Christ, Salvation, and the Sacraments The Catechism will expose us to all of these things and more, and all in a year's time. And so with that, uh, I'm going to read question one in the Westminster Shorter Catechism, which is as follows. What is the chief end of man? Answer, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Here we are told the ultimate purpose for which you were created. Man was created to glorify the God whose image he bears. And in so doing, the scripture says he will find satisfaction and joy. As it says in Romans 11:36. 36, For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be glory forever. Amen. So man exists to glorify God. But how exactly do you do this? Well, to glorify something is to make it look good to do justice to an object's inherent value, worth, and beauty. And so to glorify God is to live in such a way that makes God look valuable. God look great. God look as beautiful as he actually is. To glorify God is to be more concerned about what people think about God than what people think about you. We all know what it feels like to receive glory or shame, to feel loved and honored or disrespected and rejected. And when Scripture commands us, whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, to do it to the glory of God, it is calling us to prefer in everything God's glory over our own. To not seek worship and praise for ourselves, but worship and praise for our Creator. As it says in Psalm 115, Not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but unto thy name give glory for thy mercy and for thy truth's sake. So what is the purpose for which you exist? You exist to worship God, to make him look as valuable and glorious as he actually is. And when you do that, you will be rewarded with joy that never ends. Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. This reminds us of our need to confess our sins. So as you are able, let us kneel before the Lord. Father, we confess all of these sins to you in Jesus name and amen. Amen. Let us rise for the assurance of God's pardon. The enemies of God are brought down and fallen. But we are risen and stand upright. For as the heaven is high above the earth, so great is God's mercy towards them that fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from from us. Saints of Christ, covenant church, because you have confessed your sins, holding nothing back, it is my joy to announce to you that your sins are forgiven through Christ. Thanks be to God. The sermon text this morning is from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 18, verses 21 to 35. These are the words of God. Then Peter came to him and said, Lord, how oft shall my brother sin against me, and I forgive him? Till seven times? Jesus saith unto him, I say not unto thee until seven times, but until seventy times seven. Therefore is the kingdom of heaven likened unto a certain king which would take account of his servants. And when he had begun to reckon, one was brought unto him, which owed him ten thousand talents. But for as much he had not to pay, his Lord commanded him to be sold, and his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. The servant therefore fell down and worshipped him, saying, Lord, have patience with me, and I will pay thee all. Then the Lord of that servant was moved with compassion and loosed him and forgave him the debt. But the same servant went out and found one of his fellow servants, which owed him an hundred pence. And he laid hands on him and took him by the throat, saying, Pay me what th- pay me that thou owest. And his fellow servant fell down at his feet and besought him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay thee all. But he would not, but went and cast him into prison till he should pay the debt. So when his fellow servants saw what was done, they were very sorry and came and told unto their Lord all that was done. Then his Lord, after that he had called him, said unto him, O thou wicked servant, I forgave thee all that debt because thou desirest me. Shouldest not thou also have had compassion on thy fellow servant, even as I had pity on thee? And his Lord was wroth and delivered him to the tormentors till he should pay all that was due unto him. So likewise shall my heavenly Father do also unto you, if ye from your hearts forgive not every one his brother their trespasses. Let's pray. Father, we ask now that as we study your word, that you would give us your Holy Spirit, that we, being good soil, might receive the implanted word and bear fruit that remains. We ask this in Jesus' name, and amen. Amen. Well, this morning we are going to answer uh, a question, a hard question, how do you fix A bad marriage how do you fix a bad marriage and uh, I'm going to give you the bad news the sad news up front which is that uh, not all marriages can be fixed it takes two people to have a marriage and when one person refuses to repent has abandoned the marriage or has uh, committed adultery the breaking of that marriage covenant can at times become irreparable and in those cases of hardness of heart Jesus says Divorce is permitted. This is actually the next topic that Jesus addresses after our sermon text in uh, Matthew 19. The Pharisees ask Jesus, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason? And Jesus says, "Uh, No, except it be for fornication. So, not all marriages can be fixed. Sometimes divorce is a sad necessity, but only then as a last resort and, and then with the advice and consent of the church. So that is uh, the bad news. Not all marriages can be fixed. Uh, The good news is that the vast majority of marriages can be fixed. Jesus saves. Jesus redeems. Jesus raises dead things to life. He loves to do it. And that includes raising dead marriages from the grave. As we have already seen in this sermon series, the Bible portrays Jesus as the faithful husband, the true Adam, the bridegroom who dies to save his bride. And this coming of Christ to die and rise for sinners is the only hope for any of us. And it is the only hope for any marriage. Without Jesus at the center of your household, everything else is going to fall apart. So is Jesus the most important person in your home? Is honoring God the most important house rule? If not, you will have marriage problems. You will have parenting problems. You will have all kinds of troubles that eat away at your relationships. But if Christ is the foundation, Jesus says the rains can fall, the floods can pour, the winds can blow and beat upon your house, and you will still stand firm. So Christ and the gospel is the solution to every bad marriage, to every messed up household. But how exactly Does he fix things? How does Jesus fix our marriages? Well, there are two things that are absolutely essential to every good relationship. And those two things are love and trust. Love and trust. Without mutual love and mutual trust, no marriage can survive. And so another way of of framing the question this morning, how do you fix a bad marriage, would be to ask How do you restore love and rebuild trust in a marriage? How does Jesus help us to do that? Uh, To answer that question, let us turn now to our sermon text. So starting in verses uh, 21 to 22, it says, Then came Peter to him and said, Lord, how oft shall my brother sin against me, and I forgive him? Till seven times? Jesus saith unto him, I say not unto thee until seven times, but until seventy times seven. Here we could uh, perhaps substitute Peter's question as such. Uh, Lord, how often shall my husband or wife sin against me and I forgive them? How many times can they sin against me and then I have permission to actually go off on them? Seven seven times? Jesus says no, not seven times, uh, but 70 times seven. What does this mean? Does anyone know where 70 times 7 first shows up in Scripture? Any guesses? It's very early. It's the first book of the Bible. Malachi. Cain and Abel. Very good. So Genesis 4, Cain kills Abel, and it says, God says this to, to Cain, Whosoever slayeth Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And then a few verses later, we meet a guy named Lamech, who says to his two wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice, ye wives of Lamech, hearken unto my speech, for I have slain a man to my wounding and a young man to my hurt. If Cain shall be avenged sevenfold, truly Lamech, seventy and sevenfold. That is the first seventy times seven that we find in the Bible. This idea of judgment happening in patterns of 7 or 70 or 70 times 7 is a consistent theme throughout the Old Testament. And it builds and comes to a climax with the coming of Jesus Christ. When Israel breaks covenant with God, how long are they in exile for? Does anyone remember? 70, 70 years. In Daniel 9, there is a prophecy that Christ would bring an end to sacrifice in the 70th seven, or uh, what probably your translation says the 70th week. A, a week is just a seven in the Bible. When Luke gives us his genealogy for Jesus, so Jesus is baptized, and then boom, he gives us uh, the genealogy in Luke 3. If you count how many generations there are, there are 77 generations from Christ back to Adam. And in all these instances, seven signifies some kind of completeness, with 70 times seven being the, you know, totality of that completeness. So what does this mean then for forgiveness? Well, it means that Jesus has come to forgive the sins of the whole world. And if Jesus offers whole and entire and complete forgiveness, then we, his followers, must do the same, which means we must forgive our brother, our husband, our wife as many times as it takes. Not only must we forgive without keeping count, but we must forgive the sins that seem most unforgivable sins like murder, sins that only the Cain's and Lamech's of the world commit. That is what forgiving 70 times seven means. And if that seems crazy to you, well, then Jesus has. Just the story to tell you. Continuing in verse 23, Jesus says this, Therefore is the kingdom of heaven likened unto a certain king, which would take account of his servants. So this story is a similitude, an analogy for what God's kingdom is like. It is like a king who is settling accounts with his servants. This is judgment day. The king is Christ and we are the servants. That's the setup. Verse 24, And when he had begun to reckon, one was brought unto him, which owed him 10,000 talents. How much is 10,000 talents? Well, uh, 10,000 is the highest Greek numeral, and a talent is the largest unit of currency. In other words, this is kind of the largest financial sum you could uh, speak of. Uh, Just to give you some perspective here. Uh, The imperial taxes for Judea, Idumea, Samaria, Galilee, and Perea, all combined, was only 800 talents. And so here is a servant who owes the king uh, over 12 times the annual tax revenue for all of those regions. This is a huge debt, and that is how much every person owes God. That is how much every person owes God. Now, someone, Might object here and say, you know, it seems kind of unjust for God to punish us forever for something that, you know, only happened in a moment in this life. Doesn't that seem unfair? How is it that this servant could even accumulate that much debt? Well, uh, besides being a a sinful question to ask, this question misunderstands both who God is and how justice works. Uh, I'll give you an example. How long does it take to commit? a murder or to commit adultery right i mean you could plan something for a long time but the actual act only takes you know a few minutes and yet the consequence of those momentary actions last for a lifetime they're irreversible you cannot undo a murder you cannot undo adultery once those crimes have been committed there is no way to repay this isn't like stealing where you can uh, make restitution and thus, under God's law, the penalty for these kinds of crimes was death. So the duration of the crime is not the only metric for justice. And we all kind of know this. You also have to factor in what we might call the heinousness or the seriousness of the crime. we will give you another example. Uh, imagine a, a grown man, a big uh, buff guy. He just walks up to another grown man and decks him in the face, knocks him out. And for no reason at all, he, he just wanted to do it. We'd all say, okay, uh, that's bad, you, you know you shouldn't do that. Uh, but what if he punched uh, an old lady? What if he punched a child or a pregnant woman or a baby? We all know that that is far worse. Of course, they're all people, but there's a difference in degree. The same goes for when a person of great dignity is attacked. If you tried to punch the king or assault the king's wife, you're probably going to get hung because that is a much more heinous crime. And this is how it is like with God. Who created you? God. Who gives you life and breath? God. Who gives us rain in its season, sunshine and soil, and makes food to come out of the ground for you? God does. What do you have that you did not receive? And yet, we are born into this world ungrateful, entitled, born complaining. More than that, we use the vocal cords and breath in our lungs to blaspheme, to profane and curse God and our neighbor, and we worship other things besides God and demean his glory. How much is God worth? How much is God's dignity and value? It is infinite. And yet, we have not given him what he deserves. That is the real injustice that we should be outraged by. People do not treat God as God. That is the 10,000 talent crime that every man has committed. And the fact that someone even asks this question about the fairness of hell goes to show just how depraved and sinful our hearts are. We are blind to our own wickedness. We are ignorant of the debt we owe. And so Jesus tells, the, tells us this story in part to teach us about ourselves, to teach us about sin, to teach us what we owe. Continues in verses 25 to 26. But for as much as he had not to pay, his Lord commanded him to be sold and his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. The servant therefore fell down and worshiped him saying, Lord, have patience with me. And I will pay thee all. Think about this. How long do you think it would take to pay off 10,000 talents? Well, a talent is equal to about 6,000 denarii, and an average worker's daily wage was one denarius. And so, if this servant were to pay back that 10,000 talents, it would take him 164,383 years. You know that's uh, you know like 27 times the whole history of the earth if the earth is you know 6,000 years old, 164,383 years to pay back the 10,000 talents. Uh, I think the servant knows this, and I think the king knows this as well, right? Uh, I think they both know how much this actually is, and yet he says, "Have patience with me. I will pay. I will pay you back." Uh, do you think the king believed him? I don't think so. And yet verse 27 says, then the Lord of that servant was moved with compassion and loosed him and forgave him the debt. Think about that. Isn't this the heart of man? You know, we, you sin and we think we can work our way back into heaven. right? And, and yet God, he, he sees us kind of telling this lie, whether it's Actually believing the lie that we can, or just bald-faced lying to God, and it says He's moved with compassion. He He pities us, and He forgives us the debt. That is, this is God's heart towards sinners. He knows far better than we the debt that we owe. He knows that no amount of time and no amount of work can ever pay it back, and yet He is moved with compassion. Even at the lie, we tell to him or ourselves, saying, I will pay you back. Now you would think, you would think that this offer of such lavish and undeserved forgiveness would have an effect on someone. It might make them maybe more compassionate as well. Uh, But what does the servant do? Verse 28, but the same servant went out and found one of his fellow servants. Right, and in the text, this is just happening, bang bang, right, right away. He he leaves the king's presence and he goes out and he finds one of his fellow servants, which owed him an hundred pence, and he laid hands on him, took him by the throat, saying, "Pay me that thou owest." Now, uh, if you've ever maybe heard other sermons on this text or read commentaries on it, uh, you it's common to hear how little a hundred pence is, and Compared to 10,000 talents, it is a, you know, infinitesimally small sum. But 100 pence is not 100 pennies. It's 100 days worth of wages. So uh, imagine this, imagine you went to work for three and a half months and then never got a paycheck for it, (laughs) okay? How would that make you feel? I mean, that's not a totally unpayable amount like the 10,000 talents, but I mean, that's still a quarter of your annual income. Three and a half months, you're working, that's, that's 100 pence, and you never get paid. So think about um, how you would feel towards your employer or towards maybe you loan that money to someone, how you would feel towards them if that was owed to you. What would you feel when you saw that person who owes you? Would you be moved with compassion? Would you be inclined to forgive their debt? Or would you do what this servant does and grab them by the throat and tell them, to pay up. Well, this is in essence what happens in bad marriages. You hold old sins against your spouse. You don't ever let them forget what they owe you. You keep all the receipts, a record of wrongs, and you grab them by the throat, hopefully, not literally, any chance you get, and tell them to pay up. What is the habit of a bad marriage? You minimize your sins and you magnify their sins. All of your sins are understandable. There's good reasons for them. There's good excuses for them. You know, you had a headache. But all of their sins are totally unacceptable. And so long as that is the way that you relate to your fellow servant, your husband, your wife, or anyone really, you are telling God, please treat me like that. Treat me the way that I treat other people. What did we just pray in the Lord's Prayer? Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. The Lord's Prayer is a dangerous prayer to pray. It is dangerous to pray that prayer, to ask God to do that if you have any unforgiveness in your heart. And it is so serious that you ought to question whether you are a Christian, whether you are born again, if love and forgiveness is not coming out of you. Why? Well, because look at what happens to the unforgiving servant in this parable. Verses 29 to 35. And his fellow servant fell down at his feet and besought him saying, have patience with me and I will pay thee all. And he would not, but went and cast him into prison till he should pay the debt. So when his fellow servants saw what was done, they were very sorry and came and told unto their Lord all that was done. Then his Lord, after that he had called him, said unto him, O thou wicked servant, I forgave thee all that debt because thou desirest me. Shouldest not thou also have had compassion on thy fellow servant, even as I had pity on thee? And his Lord was wroth and delivered him to the tormentors till he should pay all that was due unto him. So likewise shall my heavenly Father do also unto you, if ye from your hearts forgive not everyone his brother their trespasses. What is the destiny of those who refuse to forgive? It's being delivered to the tormentors. Jesus says you will be handed over to the torturers. That is how serious unforgiveness is to God. And this is a compounded uh, in marriage by the fact that you are one with your spouse. And so to hold a debt over the head of your husband or wife is to hold a debt over your own head. Aren't you one flesh? Aren't you on the same team? Aren't your possessions shared? Usually, the person who holds on to the debt does so because they think it gives them power. And so to forgive would be to relinquish the power that you feel you have over someone, the power to get your way. And that is exactly what God demands that you give up when you forgive. You give up the judgment seat. In Scripture, there are two chairs you can sit in. There is the throne for the king who sits as judge, and then there is the mercy seat. The person who refuses to forgive is the person who has set themselves up as God. Because who has the power to forgive sins but God alone? And so to forgive is to get up and give the judgment seat over to God. That's his chair. You're sitting in God's chair. And then you go and sit down next to your spouse in the mercy seat. That is the only safe place to be. That is where all good marriages must begin and must stay. With husband and wife together in the mercy seat and God alone sitting as judge. And there is absolutely zero hope for your marriage until that happens. You cannot make any real progress, any progress at all, in restoring love or rebuilding trust until those debts have been settled before the Lord. I'll close with a couple of uh, practical applications and how uh, this should be done. Number one, uh, Jesus says in Matthew 7, remove the plank from your own eye before you deal with the speck in your brother's eye. So doubtless, there's sins against you, but scripture says here, you are going to tend to magnify their sin and minimize your own. And if that is the case, do not confront the sin of your spouse until you have sought forgiveness from them for your own sins. Do not confront your spouse's sin until you have sought forgiveness for your sins. That is the order of things. Deal with your plank before their speck. That's number one. Number two, ask yourself and ask, ask the Lord uh, these two questions. Now, the first question is this. Is there anyone I need to ask for forgiveness? Is there anyone I need to ask for forgiveness? Anyone at all? Is there anyone you have wronged and never sought forgiveness from? It might be your parents, might be in laws, might be your children, might be relatives or friends or coworkers or that kid on the playground you bullied in kindergarten. Go all the way back. Think about that. And then, you know, if you can remember it, ask God, you know, call to mind anything I need to deal with and then write their name down. Make a list. And if they are still alive and you remember, and they do too, then go and seek forgiveness. If they don't live nearby, write them a letter, send them an email, but do whatever is within your power to make things right. This is a general rule. There are some exceptions and come talk to me if you have questions about that. But the important thing is that you confess that sin to God. You know, you you bullied someone on the playground 30 years ago, confess that to God. Okay. Maybe you can't find the person. uh, Maybe they totally don't remember or Maybe they do, <laughs> and it would be the greatest testimony and evangelistic moment in the world for you to go and ask them for forgiveness and say, they say, this is kind of odd that you're telling me uh, sorry for punching me on the playground 30 years ago, and you say, well, this is what Jesus wants me to do. Jesus, huh? What, what if Christians did that, right? People would think differently about the God that we claim to worship. The important thing here is that you confess the sin to God, you're good with God, and then as you're able, uh, with those qualifications, you know, seek out a forgiveness from them. That's, that's the first question to ask yourself. Second question is going the other direction. Is there anyone that you need to forgive? Is there anyone that I need to forgive? Who has wronged you and it still hurts? What sins does love seem unable to cover? Who are you still sitting in the judgment seat over, replaying the scene over and over again, wanting them to pay up for their sins? Write that down and give it to the Lord. Give it to the one who actually is the judge and will judge justly. They may never apologize. They might be dead. They might not ever ask for your forgiveness. But it does you no good to keep thinking about that 100 pence over and over and over again when God has cleared away your 10,000 talents. That's what you need to be thinking about instead. Meditate upon that. I'll close with this. Jesus says in Matthew 7, judge not that you be not judged, right? The world's favorite verse against Christians. Well, this is actually how you uh, apply this verse. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment that you judge, you will be judged. And, the, and with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. What this means is that on Judgment Day, God is going to say to you, how did you treat other people? Did you forgive them or did you punish them? Did you murder them in your heart or did you have compassion on them? And how many times did you forgive? Seven times or was it 70 times seven? Jesus says, so likewise shall my heavenly Father do unto you. What do you want to hear from God on Judgment Day? Well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your master or depart from me, you worker of iniquity. I never knew you. That choice of what you're going to hear is before you today. The choice is yours. To know God is to know his forgiveness. It is to know that your 10,000 talent debt that would take 164, thousand years to pay off has been repaid, has been paid by the blood of the lamb. And therefore anything, Anyone ever does to you is just a hundred pence in comparison. That doesn't mean it won't hurt. There's real sin, real betrayal, real evil in this world, but where sin abounds, God's grace has abounded all the more. And so let grace abound in your marriage. Make the death and resurrection and reign of Christ the foundation of your home. That is how you begin to restore love and rebuild trust in marriage. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you that you are a righteous judge. God, we thank you for giving us time to repent. God, we thank you for being so patient with us. And we ask that you would help us to be uh, to others the way you have been with us. That we might be set free that we, not, we might not be uh, enslaved to the past, the past sins that people have done towards us, that we might not hold grudges and let uh, bitterness become uh, actual cancer in our bodies. God, will you have mercy on uh, the marriages in our church? Will you restore marriages that are fractured? Will you protect and strengthen marriages that are doing well? Will you help us by Christ's name? We pray this in his name and amen. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 23 to 24, Jesus says, If you bring your gift to the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. The whole point of worship is communion with God. And in this passage, Jesus is saying that the prerequisite to communion is reconciliation with others. Don't come to this table if you still owe your brother an apology. Offer the gift of forgiveness and then come and partake. In this meal, the Lord Jesus gives us himself. But this sacrament will do you no good and in fact can do you great harm if there is still bitterness and unforgiveness in your heart. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, For if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord that we should not be condemned with the world. So before you partake of the bread and the wine, make sure your heart is right before the Lord. If you remember that your wife or husband or child has something against you, make it right with them during the psalm. Because God hates hypocrisy. He desires mercy more than sacrifice. And that is what this meal represents. So come and welcome to the mercy of God. Come and welcome to Jesus Christ. The charge is this, forgive others as God has forgiven you 70 times 7 and you will be free. Receive now the benediction. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Go in peace.